your pastor, Trey, earlier in the service, asked the, the question before uh, the scripture reading, what causes you to sing? And it made me think of a fitting uh, hymn, a fitting stanza from a hymn. Uh, has anyone here raised your hand if you've heard the hymn, How Can I Keep From Singing? Has anyone heard that hymn? There's a line in that song that says, No storm can shake my inmost soul. While to that rock, the rock of Christ, I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and of earth, how can I keep from singing? Friends, we're going to be discussing a storm in just a little bit in Psalm 29. But before that, just a quick introduction. My name is Ryan Berry. I serve at University Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, as one of the pastoral assistants. It is my pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, but before we get started... I'd just like to tell you that growing up in Oklahoma, I'm from Oklahoma, there are two kinds of people. And I don't mean kind of trivial differences, meaning like, are you an Oklahoma City guy or a Tulsa guy? Or, uh, you know, do you drive a Ford or a Chevy? Or do you like uh, Toby Keith or Garth Brooks? Not anything trivial like that. There is a significant question that how you answer it tells a lot about you. And the question is this, where are you when a tornado is coming for your house? Are you inside? Are you in the storm shelter? Or are you outside on the front porch, maybe with a glass of tea in your hand? I can't tell you how many times during tornado season, you'll hear it on the news, hey, Seminole County, wherever you're at in the state, you better go ahead and take shelter. There's an F4 tornado coming right for you. And like clockwork, you can look out of your kitchen window and see these people just emerging from their homes like moles out of the ground after they've been hibernating. There's some uh, desire to be out and to behold the storm in all of its beauty, even though it's dangerous. We can all admit that from these two choices, there is a clearly wise course of action and an unwise course of action, right? One party prepares to hide themselves in a suitable refuge. The other presumes upon their safety, right? In the midst of a raging storm. Well, this morning, we're going to be studying Psalm 29, which you, I, think, I think you can find on page 485 in the black CSB pew Bibles that are in the back. Uh, so if you'll turn with me to Psalm 29, I'll read the text for us, and then I'd like to pray for the Lord's help, and we'll begin uh, our time together. So if you're there at Psalm 29, this is how the Bible reads. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sarian like a young wild ox. 
the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, you have set your glory above the heavens. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed among us. Pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Pray that this day you would give us our daily bread, that you would forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sinned against us. Lord, we pray that you would not lead us into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we do now ask that you would help us to ascribe all glory all honor, and all praise to your name, for you alone are do it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So friends, this psalm begins in the hallways of heaven. Heavenly beings are there paying homage to God in the splendor of his holiness. From here we move to see the celebration of God's mighty strength, evidenced or pictured in an awe-inspiring storm. The storm ravages the coasts and the forests of Canaan, beginning on the Mediterranean Sea. If you're looking at your Bible, you can follow along. The Mediterranean Sea in verse 3, it makes landfall in Lebanon. That's verses 4 to 6. And it spreads all the way to Mount Hermon, verse 6. That's what it's talking about when it says Sarayan. It's talking about Mount Hermon. And the wilderness of Kadesh in verse 8. And as the storm breaks and the thunderclaps begin to halt, we see the Lord himself appear on a throne. This psalm helps us to see that our God is both enthroned over judgment and salvation. Judgment for all who fail to bend the knee and ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. Salvation for all who are called according to his electing love. All of those who are hidden in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, you guys know Charles Spurgeon? Anyone? He wrote about this psalm, these verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. It's so true. And David here in this psalm is meaning to convince his audience that God alone is the king of the storm. He means for us to recognize and act in accordance with the worthiness of God to be praised. Some scholars have suggested that Psalm 29 was actually an ancient hymn used in Baal worship and that it could have been adapted actually uh, from that old text uh, and and serves kind of as a polemic, kind of like a critical attack against this heresy that Baal, who was known as the god of the storm, was actually in control of the weather. 
they, they think it could have been used as a critical attack against that heresy, declaring that Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is repeated 18 times in this psalm, it's the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh, that he's the one true God over all creation. And not only is he the Lord over creation, but he's the Lord over heaven and earth and judgment and salvation. Friends, the psalm is meant to destroy any false notion that would declare that God is not all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving. If you're looking for a main idea from this psalm, I'd argue that it's this. Glorify the king. Because, there's two reasons why. Glorify the king because he's strong. It's verses 3 to 9. And because he saves. It's verses 10 and 11. It's a simple outline. But it's full of rich meditation that I pray uh, we will benefit from this afternoon. So here's the outline. There's only one point. There's only one exhortation. There's only one uh, command in this psalm. Glorify the king. Praise the Lord. Right? The first thing, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And there are two reasons why we ought to praise the Lord. And that's, number one, he's strong. And number two, he saves. Let's begin by considering our primary point this morning. Glorify the king. That's verses one and two. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse two. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. If you look at the first half of verse one, you'll notice something interesting about the original audience of this psalm, right? King David has addressed this psalm not to Israel, not to the choir master, not uh, as a mascal, but he's addressed it to the very hosts of heaven. We have by God's marvelous wisdom been made able to glean instruction and encouragement from David's own exhortation to angels. That's what he means when he says, Heavenly host, are you heavenly beings in verse 1? The Hebrew word translated heavenly beings literally means sons of God. And this phrase can be understood in a couple of different ways. So there are 13 citations, this is a quick note, there are 13 citations to Noah's flood, the Old Testament flood in the Old Testament. Twelve of them are in Genesis 6 to 11. So in the flood narrative and the chapters surrounding it. There's only one more reference in the Old Testament. And you guessed it's in verse 10 of Psalm 29. So some would see the unique reference in verse 10 to the flood, Noah's flood, to necessitate that David here is writing to those sons of God that we read of in Genesis 6, right before the flood narratives, right? The ones that, you know, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Therefore, some would say that David is calling those heavenly beings who transgressed to repent and worship Yahweh. It's one way to understand it. Meanwhile, others would take the approach that David simply understands that his own individual praises are insufficient and that he is therefore calling upon even the hosts of heaven, the angelic beings, to join him in praising the Lord. 
But regardless of where you fall on that argument, I think the basic purpose of heavenly beings here is simply to bring to mind that scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where angels are surrounding the throne in heaven and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The entire earth is filled with his glory. This is the same state of heart and mind that David is calling us to. So whether David is exhorting the angels who rebelled in Genesis 6 or those who remain faithful to this day who are serving him in the throne room, the implication for us remains the same. We are all called to praise the Lord. So let's pause and consider for a moment. Are you ascribing to the Lord glory and strength? Are you giving God the glory that is due his name? Are you worshiping the Lord in the splendor of his holiness? This is what we're commanded to do from this text. Do his perfect attributes produce in you a desire to more completely and totally ascribe to him all worth, all honor, all blessing, all glory? What does it mean that we are to ascribe or attribute to God glory? What does that word even mean? The way it's being used here, it means weight, weightiness. It means that the glory of God is heavy, weighty, full of gravitas. God is awe-inspiring. To ascribe glory to God is to be completely enamored by His beauty, His strength, His wisdom, His love, His holiness, His steadfastness, His patience. Are you praising the Lord this afternoon? Perhaps one reason that we fail to offer right praise to God is because we've become inundated with the pursuit of accruing praise for ourselves. I know that's a temptation of mine. Thomas Manton, he's a Puritan writer, he said this, When we hunt after praise from men and we make that the chief scope of our actions, God's glory will certainly lie in the dust. And he says this, the great sin of the old world was this, let us make a name for ourselves. He's referencing Genesis 11 at that point. Our text this morning confirms that we ought not seek out praise from men, but totally give ourselves to the work and the joy of ascribing to God all the glory. But maybe you're not dealing so much with outright self-indulgence and self-importance and trying to accrue glory for yourself. Maybe you're just struggling to worship God because you feel hopeless. Are you jaded? Are you mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted and you can't seem to find any rest? Are you scared of something? Are you scared of public failure, public humiliation? Are you scared of the thoughts of other people? Are you feeling condemned in your spirit? That God is gracious to everyone else, but he can't truly be gracious to me. I've done things that are unforgivable. Are you constantly on edge? 
Was it a battle to even get here to church today? Or even to get out of bed at all? If this is you, I want, to, I want you to be encouraged by God's word that there's hope. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 to 8, he gives us life-giving promises that help as a balm. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 5 say this. These are part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Friends, all of these blessings, the kingdom of heaven is yours. You will be comforted by God. You will inherit the earth. God freely bestows these upon you, not because you're impressive or because you have everything together, but actually because you showcase genuine spiritual poverty. Are you a weak, vile sinner who is only able to rely upon Christ for salvation? He's your only hope. If I'm going to go to heaven, it's because God's going to make me go to heaven. It's not because I can will it. If that's you, that is exactly the kind of person that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Self-reliant people don't end up in heaven. Those who rely upon Christ end up in heaven. And the marvelous truth is that if you, even though you're jaded, even though you're distressed, even though you're fill in the blank, if you call upon Christ, all things, all good things are now yours since you are his. Going back to Psalm 29. It's important to note that God doesn't become glorious only after we ascribe glory to him. The text here isn't when it says ascribe to the Lord glory. It's not saying ascribe to God glory so that he might have some glory. No. God is and always has been glorious all on his own. That's why when we fail to rightly worship and to glorify God, it's actually sin. It's the, it's the sin of theft, right? We're glory thieves. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 corrects us in this sinful behavior when it says this, And he, Jesus, died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but the one who died and was raised. We don't live for ourselves. We live for Christ and his glory. How many of you have considered that every time you fail to rightly glorify God with your whole heart, you are actually stealing from God? Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, is what it says in verse 2. God has earned for himself all glory, all honor, and all praise. And it is actually right and just for him to receive all of the glory. So how can we, by God's grace, seek to be improving in our efforts to bring appropriate praise to him? How has David instructed us? to stir up our affections for the glory of Christ, for the glory of the King. He's given us two truths that are meant to produce 
awe and thanksgiving, the first is this, God is strong. Stronger than you can ever imagine. And two, God saves his people, even from the most dire circumstances. Our first point was glorify the king, and now we're going to get into why should we do that. Here's our first sub-point. Verses 3 to 9, we worship the king, we glorify the king because he is strong. We're talking about the strength of God here. I'm going to read verses 3 to 9 for us again. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sirion, Mount Hermon, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple, all cry glory. So in verses 3 to 9, the voice of the Lord is repeated seven times for emphasis. And it is producing and directing a violent thunderstorm. David tracks the storm's movement for us. Like we mentioned earlier, it originates in the middle middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it slowly crawls toward the coastline of Canaan makes landfall at Lebanon where its winds rage and it smashes the cedars of Lebanon, those mighty cedars, to bits. From there, the storm spreads further inland, beginning in the north and heading to the remote south. It causes whole countries, mountains, to skip like a calf before it subsides. And then it leaves us in a state of calm and quiet. And what is the response of the heavenly hosts at the sight of this magnificent and terrifying and devastating storm? The second part of verse 9 says that in his temple all cry glory. Glory. Is that your first reaction when you hear of the world crumbling under God's wrath? Glory, it it ought to be our reaction. The chief goal of this storm is twofold. On the one hand, it it is meant to produce uh, praise and worship to God for those who are in his temple. Stay with me. And on the other hand, it's meant to strike divine terror into those outside his temple. We'll work through that thought in just a moment. It's meant to produce praise and worship to God for those in his temple and strike divine terror into the hearts of those outside his temple. For those who are enemies of God, this storm serves as an image and a reminder that there is soon coming a day when the floodgates of God's wrath will be opened upon them. The tempest described in verses 3 to 9 is meant to portray the king's justice. And to produce the fear of God in men. Let's consider God's strength through judgment from verses 3 to 9. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is above the waters. 
the God of glory thunders, the Lord above the vast water. I don't know about you, but deep water, like really deep water, terrifies me. (laughs) It's really, for some of you, it's really cool. You're scuba divers or whatever, but like, I'm cool with a lake, a pool, you know, whatever. But if you drop in, like, imagine being dropped into the middle of the ocean. You have no idea what's beneath you. That's scary. The Mariana Trench is the deepest point on earth. It's almost seven miles below sea level. If you took Mount Everest and you flipped it, like just 180 degrees, it wouldn't touch the bottom. Storms can be scary enough when they're on the land, but this is a storm on the ocean. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. If you're not in Christ, here's some implications. If you're not in Christ, you need to consider this question. Are you ready to meet the God of the storm? When you don't even have anywhere to, to plant your foot, your footsteps, you can't even brace for impact. You ready to meet with God? Verse 4, the voice of the Lord in power, the voice of the Lord in splendor. Splendor can also mean full of majesty. Charles Spurgeon said that the king of kings speaks like a king. As a lion roars, all the beasts of the forest are still. So is the earth when Jehovah thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful and full of majesty, but like a lion, it is a fearsome and horrendous reality to be standing in front of the blast with no safety. Verses 5 to 6, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. So the cedars of Lebanon are legendary. Think of like Middle Eastern redwood trees, some stretching 40 feet or more in diameter. These trees are symbols of strength and prosperity. Their timber was used to make ships, make homes, even make idols to other gods. And some even supported the frames of temples to false gods. And Sarayan, Mount Hermon, is similar to the cedars in that it was, understand, it was understood to be as firm a foundation as the very crust of the earth. It was not going anywhere. After all, who in their right mind would assume that a mountain could even be moved? But David writes that the voice of Yahweh causes the cedars to be smashed to bits. He says that Sarion is made to skip or to frolic like a young wild ox when the Lord says so. The Lord doesn't have to even outstretch his hand, but when he says so, this mountain gets up and moves and jumps and loses its footing. But this isn't meant to simply be understood as God's control over the map. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 2.17 concerning the judgment of God on the last day. He said this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, 
and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So here's a question. If you're here and you think of yourself as fine with God, but you haven't repented in repented of your sins and believed and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? What do you make of this promise that the Lord will humble all of the proud on the last day? I pray you don't scoff at that question, but that you'd consider the foolishness of trying to outpunch the Lord. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. Flames of fire here simply refers to strong lightning. The lightning bolts strike the trees and the plains, and wherever they land, they leave in their wake a burning, smoldering, smoking fire, which disfigures and mars everything in its path. Again, we're told by Isaiah that this is in Isaiah 66, 16, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Verses 8 and 9. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And strips the woodlands bare. The Lord makes the deer give birth. Raise your hand if you've been in a storm and you look out of your window and there's a deer giving birth because of the storm. <laughs> I don't know what kind of storm this is. Perhaps that expecting mother had hidden herself among the trees of the forest to find safety before. Perhaps she had sought refuge there and she had been able to ride out previous storms in relative comfort. But this storm was different. Like our parents in the garden, the leaves of the forest that sought to hide this deer were insufficient. And the thunderous voice of the Lord reached her still, causing her to be, like Adam and Eve, very much afraid. So afraid that this deer actually went into premature labor. That's the picture that it's painting. She was so horrified by the storm that she went into premature labor. Friends, do you think that your own tattered clothes of self-righteousness or works righteousness are enough to keep God from seeing you in your sin? The The lush forests of Kadesh were not enough to hide this deer from the storm. Have you convinced yourself that, you know, God is all-knowing and He's holy and he's perfect in justice, but I'm sure he actually does great on a curve. I'm sure he will cut me some slack. No one can do what he commands. Have you fallen for that lie? One commentator said, there is no concealment, there's no hiding from the fire glance of the Almighty. One flash of his angry eye turns midnight into high noon. He sees everything. He reveals everything. There's no hiding from God. The storm described in verses 3 to 9 is meant to serve as a warning of impending judgment from God. That's its purpose. 
W.S. Plummer put it this way, it is fitting that the revelations of wrath should be in tones of terror. We know from the Bible that there's soon coming a day when all of humanity will be judged according to their works and they will receive just repayment for their sins. And since all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this means that we are all standing on the coastline of Lebanon watching as this storm of God's wrath is approaching. Every human being is in that state. This must provoke in you the question, is there any way that I can escape? Is there anywhere that I can be safe? Is there any way to avoid being smashed to bits like a Lebanese cedar or trampled by Sarayan or stripped bare as the forests of Kadesh? Is there any hope? There is but one hope and it is hope enough, friends. Because the Lord is not only strong in judgment, He's kind and He's strong in salvation. We glorify the King because He's strong and because He saves. This is our last sub point. Verses 10 and 11. He saves. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned, King forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So, Like I mentioned earlier, this reference to the flood in verse 10 is a direct reference to the flood of Noah. That universal flood, right? Through which God displayed his mighty strength in judgment to the entire world. But the flood wasn't only a picture of judgment. It was also a picture of marvelous, unmerited, lavish mercy and grace. Was it not? Genesis 6, 8 says this, that Noah, despite any of his own works, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You might know it as Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The Lord who sat over the flood, the one who directed the floodwaters of judgment over the entire earth, also didn't fail to provide a means of protection and deliverance for his people. You're standing on the coastline, and he's done the same thing for you if you're in Christ. Isn't that amazing? The wrath is still coming. It's still directed. It's still universal. It's still going to cover the whole earth. But he's made a means of protection for you. When God promised to judge the earth for her vast wickedness, he gave Noah insight and skill into crafting an ark that he might hide himself in it and be saved on the day of judgment. In the same way, God has promised to judge the living and the dead. He's done this. But he has not done so without offering his own body as an ark in which we can hide ourselves. 
To borrow Thomas Brooks's language, Christ himself serves as an ark for all of God's Noahs. If you're in Christ, there's an ark for you to hide in. It's Jesus Christ himself. Friends, at Calvary, things did not go well for Christ so that they would go well for us. His body, Christ's body was broken like a cedar so that we might be spared. At his death, the earth shook violently like the forests of Kadesh. Having been scorned and rejected by men, his body was stripped as bare as the forests of Kadesh. And why did he do this? Beloved, in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the very God of glory, the God of the storm that we've been considering, we see him become a man. The word of God has become flesh. If you look at Psalm 29 and you look, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord has become a man. He is Jesus Christ. And on the cross, He pays for all of the times that we've been found guilty of refusing to glorify God. He forgives us for all of our sins the way that we fail to do, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. We regularly commit the sin of theft. But in Christ's body, He takes upon all of our sin. And in return, He gives us a storehouse that is filled with His own righteousness. He is the only man in history to perfectly ascribe to God all glory, all honor, all strength. And to be marked safe in the face of this storm, all we must do is repent of our sins, trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And the Bible makes perfectly clear that if we do this, we will indeed be saved. If you've not done this, I pray that you would. The old hymn is true that Jesus ready this afternoon, he ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. And if you do, this is amazing, if you do, you will now begin to experience the strength of God that we've been talking about in verses 3 to 9 in wonderfully encouraging ways. The same strength of God that was once meant for your destruction has now been reappropriated and dispatched for your sanctification, for your perseverance. Consider with me again verses 3 to 9. And let's consider God's strength and salvation. Verse 3 The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water. Friend, did you know that there is no human heart that is so unstable or so in opposition to the will of God that it cannot be made calm in an instant by His voice? 
you could be sinning for 90 years. It's not too late for you. Remember our Lord Jesus in the boat? The storm is raging outside. He's in the hull asleep. They say, teacher, do you not care that we're going to die? Do you not care that we're perishing? And he comes up and just says, okay, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey his command. So he does to the clamorous waves of restlessness in each heart that trusts him. Your tumultuous heart can be calmed by Christ. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Is there more, a more majestic and powerful means of grace that God has given us than his written word? 2 Timothy 3.15 reminds us that the sacred writings, the, the scripture, the holy Bible, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we might not lack any good thing. All of this he accomplishes by his word. Verses 5 and 6, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sarion like a young wild ox. In the same way that the storm of God's judgment promises to humble the proud, the gospel provides hope that there's no human heart that's too dense or too set in its path that it can even for a second Hope to refuse the call of God's electing love. I pray that's an encouragement to you in your evangelism. If you have a neighbor or a coworker or an old friend from school growing up who you think, it doesn't matter what I say. There's no way they will change. I would encourage you that God is strong enough to do whatever he will do. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And his voice is able. His call, his effectual call is able to accomplish all that it sets out to. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. can avail for you. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. Friends, once the Lord calls us, he uses that flaming breath to fire a furnace of refinement so that after enduring trials for a little while, we might have the dross of our sinfulness removed and be left only with that which pleases him. Verses 8 to 9, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. We noted earlier that it's futile to try and hide from God and his judgment, friends. It is equally futile to attempt to hide from God and his love toward you. You may feel overlooked. You may feel forgotten, unappreciated, undervalued, worthless, without purpose, undeserving of grace. 
you should be encouraged by verses 8 to 9 that no matter how you're feeling, God sees you. Nothing hides from his sight. Nothing escapes him. There's nothing that he doesn't know about how you're feeling. Again, we'll go back to our friend Spurgeon. Child of God, you cost Christ way too much for him to ever forget you. Friends, I just want to leave you with this one question. It's a long question, but it's a single question. Will you presume wrongly upon the mercy of God and continue to fail to ascribe him the glory that is due his name? To go back to that opening illustration, will you willingly forfeit your seat in the storm shelter? Or will you ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and worship him as king forever? Finding your solace, your comfort, and your refuge in him by God's grace. And just an encouragement, a reminder. Whatever the Lord commands of you, he equips you to do through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask that you would cause us to be in awe of your strength and the wisdom of your ways. God, help us now, we ask, to rightly ascribe to you the glory that is due your name so that we might be found worthy to enter your presence and to join with those heavenly beings, the angels, in singing the glories of your name. Help us, Lord, to recognize ways in which we are tempted to presume upon your grace and teach us the way that we might kill those sinful habits and bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, continue to fashion us and form us into the image of your beloved Son, one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.